Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. For high beach reading season, here is the one-hour case for Middlemarch. Some say the best of all English novels. The farthest from Twitter speak has invented a universe as Star Wars inside a Jane Austen sort of period piece. But Middlemarch becomes a pulsing, bickering, blooming world, and you'll swear you're inside it in real time. It's an animated tapestry of a smallish English city around 1830. A living web of human foibles, temperaments, longings, and lapses. Two strikingly bad marriages before our eyes, and two great ones. Middlemarch is that rare instance of fiction that could improve your life and could frame your own lifetime as a novel. It worked that way for our guest, Rebecca Mead. She called her book, My Life in Middlemarch, in a modern take that's caught on. And she read for us the opening lines that still arrest her. She's giving us George Eliot's introduction of her heroine, Dorothea Brooke, age 19. Miss Brooke had that kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress. Her hand and wrist were so finely formed that she could wear sleeves not less bare of style than those in which the Blessed Virgin appeared to Italian painters, and her profile as well as her stature and bearing seemed to gain the more dignity from her plain garments, which by the side of provincial fashion gave her the impressiveness of a fine quotation from the Bible or from one of our elder poets in a paragraph of today's newspaper. Middlemarch has always been a writer's sort of book. Here is the poet and critic Stephanie Burt. In real life, some people get happy endings, some people don't, and some people are in forever inconclusive spaces where they're not sure what's coming next. And Elliot gives us all three kinds of characters. It's wonderful. Plenty of my favorite writers are not necessarily writers who will make you a better person. They'll just make you happier, and and they give me aesthetic delight. Paying sustained attention to George Eliot really will make you a better person. I think it's made me a better person. I've read Middlemarch all the way through three times now. I sometimes dip into it looking for things. Uh, And I actually think it's made me you know, more sympathetic to people who aren't like me and, and more patient and just generally better. And here's the novelist Jedediah Berry, who writes fantasy and science fiction. Middlemarch is just the best. It's one of my favorite books. It challenges us intellectually and imaginatively in some of the same ways that the invented worlds of, say, Ursula K. Le Guin do. Rebecca Mead is the first of our guides to Middlemarch and its effects. It's acquired a kind of gravitas that is is a bit daunting and maybe even a bit off-putting. And it's very easy to forget that once upon a time it was just the latest book by the best writer in England who everybody wanted to hear from and everybody wanted to know what was going to happen next and it was just sort of a cracking good story that readers were consuming avidly over the course of about a year during which it was published in serial form. But then it became your book. Yeah, so I first read Middlemarch when I was 17, 
and I was preparing to take an examination to go to university. And I was living in a provincial seaside town called Weymouth in Dorset in England. Mm. And that was where I'd grown up. And I was always dying to leave, at least certainly during my teens. And so it came along in my life at a moment when I was very much ready to receive it. I understood that a lot of people thought that it was the greatest novel in the English language. Mm. And I had aspirations to being a literary person, and I wanted to understand why it was considered this masterpiece. And I wanted to be one of those people who had read it and who got it uh, mm. and to have made it part of the fabric of my mind. Uh, it spoke to me in a way that really nothing else ever has. <laughs> I want you to instruct us. You write in your book that every love affair you've ever had was refracted through Middlemarch and that George Eliot changed your life in that sense. I want you to help all of us readers not just follow the story, which is assignment enough, but to, to wear it like your favorite old jacket. Well, my Middlemarch is not the same as your Middlemarch. My Middlemarch now is not the same as my Middlemarch when I was 17. Yes. So when I was 17... I read it through the prism of the character of Dorothea Brooke, as she is at the beginning of the novel, who is presented to us at the start as seemingly the central figure of the story and the heroine of the story. And she is, but there are so many other characters that come in and sort of weave through it. And it becomes a sort of polyphonic and all-encompassing panorama. But it was Dorothea Brooke who I saw myself in. I had ancestors, not very distant ancestors, who'd been the cleaner or the scullery maid in the kind of house that Dorothea Brooke lived in. I didn't identify with her class background at all, but I did very much want for myself a larger life than the one that I seem to have been given and been born into. And so the kind of longing in Dorothea to have a more significant life and to, to know more and to experience more and to grow intellectually was very much something that I had tremendous sympathy with. And at that time, I didn't really see the ways in which George Eliot was also making fun of the character of uh -huh. Dorothea. I understood there was humour in the book, but I don't think I understood the sort of thoroughgoingness of the irony that was there. You didn't say she was stunningly beautiful at 19 years old, especially in the raggedy clothes that she preferred. She is rapturous spiritually, intellectually, but ambitious on a scale of spiritual nobility at the level of St. Teresa. She wants to live a great, great life in a provincial town, which becomes, in a way, the, the story of the book. But then her first great act is a blunder. Marrying completely wrong man. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, she thinks that she will find her purpose in life by being a sort of helpmeet to a man who she imagines is a, a man of great intellect and depth of learning. And she thinks that she is going to learn from him and participate in his grand intellectual adventure. And what we can see very early on as readers in the novel is that he is not the great mind that she thinks he is. And so there's a kind of feeling when you're reading this book of, oh God, she's not really going to marry him, is she? And then 
by the end of the first volume of Middlemarch, she has married him. And so what we then know we're going to be reading is, in part, the story of what happens when a marriage takes place and doesn't turn out to be the dream that comes at the end of the book, but is like the disaster that's happened at the beginning. This is asking for trouble, but I think a lot of readers are almost derailed by her choice of Kesalban. He's such a stick. Everybody around her, starting with his sister, but all the neighbors say, he's nobody. He hasn't started on this great book of his. He's impossibly dry, boring, arrogant. And she marries him anyway. When I was a younger reader, I don't think I felt quite that way about it. I could see why and how a young woman might decide that a relationship with an older, wiser man might be a way to expand her world and expand her own range of experience and understanding. Uh, You know, who else is she going to marry? She's going to marry Sir James Chetham, the man who she's supposed to marry, who is the very nice baronet who lives next door, but she finds him incredibly frustrating. He agrees with everything she says, even when she expresses that she's uncertain about (laughs) something. He says, yes, exactly. That's a husband that would drive you crazy. So you can see how she as all of us do, sort of fills in the outlines that Kazorban presents and, you know, projects her own desires and wishes onto him and into him and marries that projection. In a way, the central question of the novel is learning how to see that other people have their own experience (laughs) and that everybody isn't just a place for you to project your own fantasies into, but that everyone else has their own centre of gravity and that what it is to become a grown-up person, what it is to become a moral person, what it is to become a good person, is to be able to enter into the imaginative space of somebody else and the imaginative existence of somebody else. It baits the hook for (laughs) 800 pages of Dorothea's growth, her learning, her reflection, her observation her relations with people, which in some sense becomes George Eliot's sermon in a way. Life is slow. You must watch it carefully. No rush, not a whole lot of ego. You must be there with other people. And by God, she does. She does. And she thinks that she is going to grow as a person, to use a very 21st century locution. Uh, She thinks that's going to happen to her by engaging in these great works as Casabon's helpmeet and assistant. There are other ways in which she has to evolve and grow as a person, but they all involve this recognition that what she has to do in life is to see beyond the boundaries of herself. She's also demonstrating what people say is George Eliot's greatest wisdom, that we feel our way to adult wisdom, not by reading necessarily or traveling necessarily or even by praying, but by attaching oneself to other lives. When she wrote about her own work, when she wrote about what she was trying to achieve, and she would do this in letters to friends, you know, she would say that her purpose in doing what she was doing was to create opportunities for her readers to empathize with people who were unlike 
themselves. Mm. She says, If art does not enlarge men's sympathies, it does nothing morally. The only effect I ardently long to produce by my writings is that those who read them should be better able to imagine and to feel the pains and the joys of those who differ from themselves in everything but the broad fact of being struggling, erring human creatures. Mm. I think that's pretty great. Rebecca Mead wrote My Life in Middlemarch. Coming up, the truth and treachery of gossip, very nearly a main character in Middlemarch. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The pleasure of George Eliot's company is a main reason to read Middlemarch. She's speaking directly to her readers about what her characters are up to. Right here, for example, she is beholding the meltingly beautiful Rosamond Vincy, playing the piano for the ambitious young Dr. Lydgate, who will become her very unhappy husband. Rebecca Mead is reading it for us. It was almost startling, heard for the first time. A hidden soul seemed to be flowing forth from Rosamond's fingers, and so indeed it was, since souls live on in perpetual echoes, and to all fine expression there goes somewhere an originating activity, if it be only that of an interpreter. Lydgate was taken possession of, and began to believe in her as something exceptional. There, as usual, George Eliot brings the touch of a poet and a philosopher to her own overflowing personal history. The scholar Rosemary Bodenheimer says Eliot is dealing out not just her childhood in a place very much like Middlemarch, but a certain air of scandal that surrounded her great success as an author. Her life was a series of events in which she was unusual, odd, and talked about by other people. It started when she was a kid, really. She was too smart for her environment. She had a phase of intense evangelical belief that put everybody around her off. And there was a moment at the age of 21 when she refused to go to church with her father and disrupted the entire family and neighborly constellation by doing it. And finally, after much negotiation and anger and pain and silence among members of the family, she agreed to accompany him to church Hmm. so long as she could think what she wanted while she was there. (laughs) And (laughs) that... um, I think she learned a lot from that, her whole sense of both liberalism and conservatism. What she called a safe revolution could only be done person by person as each person learned to be more generous towards other people's Mm. otherness. But then after that, much more scandal when she ran away to live with George Henry Lewis, her life's partner, who was legally married and could not get divorced because he had condoned his legal wife's adultery and given his name to children that she had fathered with this other man. He was a writer, formidable intellectual in his own way. He was. He was another person who'd come out of obscurity with a brain that was sizzling (laughs) with ideas, and he and she were alike in that way. Odd, not people who'd grown up in the establishment, but who created this really 
wonderful partnership of writing and reading and support. Mm. Um, but especially before she became famous as a novelist, no respectable woman would visit her. She oh. had to live with the sense that everyone talked about her and that she was the object of scandal, and yet she believed and knew that what she was doing was right. That is, it was right for her, it was right for him. But there she is, the author of Middlemarch. She is herself famous, beset by gossip, every kind of cheap shot or criticism, and almost helpless against the swirl of gossip around her. That becomes almost the story of Middlemarch. The game is called Gossip. You say Gossip is almost a protagonist in the novel, and yet the game finally, the winner, as I read you and her, is the one who resists it. You have to deal with it, but you have to say no to, as Dorothea does. You have to, yes, you have to acknowledge it, and you have to figure out a way to live in spite of it. And that's, I think, what's interesting about Middlemarch, because the the reading that I had when I was a young woman was that there were two idealists in this novel, Dorothea and the doctor, Lydgate, and their lives were kind of undone by gossip, as though mm. gossip was simply the the villain in the novel. Then I came to see that gossip was really an essential part of social life and gossip in Middlemarch was often right about the people that it was gossiping about. It could go into rumor and scandal that was wrong and based on this kind of excitement that sets people off then and now. But the people who gossip about the terribleness of Dorothy's choice of Kasabin are right, absolutely right. And her high-mindedness is wrong. And the same with Lydgate and Rosamond, who should not get married, and everyone around them thinks it's a bad idea. But they are, like the other couple, they're projecting their idealistic or craven fantasies on the other person and can't see them for who they are and under the circumstances of courtship in that time, which are, as George Eliot said, you can compress into a little bundle of cobwebs. Uh, (laughs) They... They have no idea what they're getting into. In what ways is George Eliot playing out her own situation as the target of gossip? I think she's playing out every side of her relationship to gossip. A good example of this in, in her life is that when she became famous after writing Adam Bede, which was her first major full-scale novel, this whole rumor mill started about mm-hmm. who was the actual author of Adam Bede. And because everyone knew that George Eliot was a pseudonym, and she'd picked that to hide the fact that it was the work of this scandalous woman who was living with George Henry Lewis. So, you know, they tried writing denials in the London Times and all this stuff. They tried to push away the gossip, and it wouldn't go away. And finally, they had to just sort of let it circulate through gossip, really, that it was Marianne Evans, who called herself Mrs. Lewis, who was the author. So it's a really complicated set of ideas about gossip. Rosemarie Bodenheimer has made a specialty at Boston College of connecting the lives of Victorian titans like Dickens and Eliot to their fictions. Rebecca Mead picks up the story 
at the time when George Eliot is writing Middlemarch in the voice of humane wisdom. There's no dogma or doctrine in it, but there is some sort of central statement about restraint and observation and selflessness. It struck me that self is the enemy by that point. I think it is this idea that the thing that we must all cultivate in ourselves is a greater, the word she would have used is sympathy, but the word we probably would use today is empathy for others. And that if we all do that sort of on an individual level, then the world itself will grow to be a better place. Mm. There's an idea of meliorism, the gradual improvement of the world. And I think she really believed it and wanted to believe it, even when it's a hard thing to believe. She was a person who had been raised in a Christian faith and in her teens had been a very religious person, like Dorothea, you know, very, very devoted, very, very pious. And she lost her faith in her 20s when she started to sort of probe intellectually the history and the foundation of Christianity. She really lost her faith. So what the rest of her life in some ways was devoted to was trying to figure out how to be good without God. And Middlemarch is a book about how to be good. But as you say, it is not prescriptive. It is not pious. It isn't didactic. It's not dogmatic. I don't think it can be boiled down to a single kernel of wisdom. I think that you have to have the experience of reading this 800-page book to be led through the actual experience of empathy and what that is like to find yourself as a reader moved from sympathizing with one character, to sympathizing with another, to withdrawing, to look back at it from above, from the perspective of the narrator, to be in the head of this person and then in the head of that person. I think what George Eliot wants to do, what the artistic effort of the book is, is to give you the experience of what it is to extend your sympathy to other people. It's both the theme of the novel, but it's also the experience of the novel. And I think that she probably wanted, and I think she indeed did want, for you to be able to take that experience and then apply it to your broader life. But it's not something that can be boiled down to, you know, uh, something that fits on a bumper sticker or a refrigerator <laughs> magnet or something like that. Thank God. The book is a study, an endless study of marriages. Why? People are attracted, what works, what fails, what fails again and again, what can be learned and corrected, who makes the right partner. When I read it in my 20s, my mid-early 20s, I read it very much at that time as a book about marriage and a sort of cautionary tale about marriage and about the ways in which it was so easy to go wrong, and there being so many ways in which one could go wrong. I mean, the novel is full of marriages, and, and a good number of them are not good marriages at all. You know, obviously, the, the kind of terrible marriage in the book is the marriage between Dr. Tertius Lydgate and his wife Rosamond, and that is a kind of chilling depiction of how, on both sides, they're both horribly mistaken, and it turns into a disaster from the very first moment. And it's a tragedy um, because there is no escape. 
And it's the ruination of Lydgate's life in some sense. I'm glad you mentioned Lydgate and Rosamond because it is tragic. It's the stage of Dorothea's great triumph, it seems to me, in that wonderful chapter 81. Lydgate and Rosamond are on the rocks. She's the closest thing to a villain in the book. She's vain, she's narcissistic, she's, she's a spender, and she's ruined his career. She's also been caught in a room in a passionate-seeming scene with Will Ladislaw. And by this time, Dorothea is very much in love with him. So, what's to do? Dorothea, after sleepless night, comes to visit Rosamond to tell her that it's her judgment and others that her man Lydgate is a good doctor and a good human being and that there's something to be redeemed there. I had a feeling of my things that the magic of Dorothea has rubbed off on Rosamond. She is reaching out in kindness, in close observation, in complete candor and honesty to do another person, another suffering person, great good. Yes, that is the moment when Dorothea has the opportunity to put herself into the shoes of another person because she thinks that she's lost Ladislaw and she goes to Rosamond anyway, even though she's upset and rivalrous in some sense with her. I love... There's a passage in the chapter preceding that, in chapter 80, where there's a moment where Dorothea has this tortured night where she realises that she has loved Will all along, or that she certainly that she loves him now, and yet she feels that she has to go and defend Lydgate to Rosamond. And there's this moment where she wakes up in the next morning, having spent this night wrestling with her soul and there's this moment where she opens the curtains and looks out of the window to the scene lying in front of her out of her window and she sees this road and on the road I'll read the line she opened her curtains and looked out towards the bit of road that lay in view with fields beyond outside the entrance gates on the road there was a man with a bundle on his back and a woman carrying her baby In the field she could see figures moving, perhaps the shepherd with his dog. Far off in the bending sky was the pearly light, and she felt the largeness of the world and the manifold wakings of men to labour and endurance. She was a part of that involuntary, palpitating life and could neither look out on it from her luxurious shelter as a mere spectator nor hide her eyes in selfish complaining. So it's that recognition of oneself as part of that involuntary palpitating life that is, you know, the key, in a sense, to Dorothea's understanding of what the story of Middlemarch is about. And Mm. I think it's probably key to the understanding of most readers by the time they get to that point, which is very far on in a very, very long book. Rebecca, you said earlier that you first read Middlemarch without an ironic ear or eye. How does that change? Yeah, I think that I missed a lot of the irony. I don't think I missed all of it. I don't think I was that bad a reader, but I think I missed a lot of it because I was so caught up with the truth of of Dorothea's story. I mean, Dorothea doesn't see the irony of her situation. She might do later when she looks back on it. So I think that, you know, that's one of the aspects of the novel that just when you return to it later and you see these elements and these dimensions of it, that it's a very funny book, which is not something that you would necessarily know from the kind of reverential way in which it's talked about. But you understand the humour with which 
Dorothea is depicted. I think also I didn't understand until I was really in my 40s the pathos of the character of Casabon, who is not... I mean, yes, she makes a big mistake marrying him, but he too is a figure of tremendous vulnerability and equally deserving of our sympathy as readers. And I find it, I mean, once you get to his age, which is only 45, although he feels like an old, old man when you're reading it as a young person. But once you get to his age and you realize everything that he has lost and uh, foregone and the realization that he himself has that having sort of waited so long in his life to open himself up to a figure like Dorothea, he can't do it. He doesn't have it in him. And he himself recognizes the failure of his work, the failure of himself as a partner and the failure of himself really in every way. I mean, it's a tremendously compassionate portrait of him at the same time as being a really scary one, because you don't want Dorothea to waste her life on him. Come back to humor. What are your instances of humor in Middlemarch? There's a thing that George Eliot does in her sentences where she often writes very long sentences and you get to the end of them and there's a fantastic sting in the tail and a, a single word that ironically subverts the self-conceptions of the person she's describing. So try this for stinging tail humor. For example, it's George Eliot's one-sentence summary of Kasaubin's fading charm for Dorothea at its dead end. What was fresh to her mind was worn out to his, and such capacity of thought and feeling as had ever been stimulated in him by the general life of mankind had long shrunk to a sort of dried preparation, a lifeless embalmment of knowledge. And it is such a wonderful trick, and she does it over and over. And as a writer, there's so much to learn from what she does. And that's certainly one of the things that I think about when I'm writing myself. The stinging tale of the sentence. Yep, yep, yep. What's the mark of George Eliot's irony? Seeing things double or not as they are. It's the recognition that, you know, most people don't see things doubly enough you know or or Mm. or triply or quadruply you know most people have a very narrow perspective on the world and she does also say that if we were to open ourselves and make ourselves more porous to the world it would be overwhelming and we wouldn't be able to bear it um so she recognizes the difficulty of making yourself as open as she calls upon us to be Can a novel be ironic and sympathetic at the high George Eliot level, both? Yeah, because the novel isn't satirical. You know, she uses a lot of irony, but the book is not a satire of provincial life. It's a portrait of provincial life, and it's a realistic one, and it's one that honors the, you know, the real lives of people. These aren't real people, but they are like you and me, and... You know, it shows people in all their complexity. And so when you do that, yes, you can be ironical about the conditions of their life or the things that they have to say, but you can still end up drawing a portrait of a of a world that leaves you almost gasping for breath at the end because of the journey that you've been taken on. Coming up, 
the appeal of George Eliot's authoritative realism for readers today who feel we may be losing our grip on reality. This is open source. Middlemarch, the novel in which characters and readers feel their way toward wisdom, and other novelists learn their trade. Susan Choi is a novelist, a Pulitzer finalist. In her new novel, Trust Exercise, she's experimenting with realism from multiple angles of time and point of view. Over the years, she says, her great teacher has been George Eliot. What I found so enthralling about Middlemarch was the way in which she was able to, you know, weave the enormous tapestry. I did find one of these passages of Eliot's in which she talks about her web. She talks about, I have so much to do. I have it in front of me. I have so much to do unraveling certain human lots and seeing how they were woven and interwoven that all the light I can command must be concentrated on this particular web. So the fact that she manages to weave a particular web what a metaphor I've trapped myself in. Amid this huge tapestry, all this weaving, right? It's like she's got the tapestry on the web. How did she do it? Do you know what I mean? Like there's the enormous background. She manages to create the foreground while never letting you forget how every bit of that foreground fits into the background, is formed by it, is influencing it, is influenced by it. You know, it's like what a filmmaker might call deep focus. You know movies that are shot in deep focus? Sure. Yeah, so uh, that deep focus technology where you can actually see everything in the frame, I always found quite nauseating, actually, because uh, you didn't know where to look, right? You could see, like, you know, your hero in the foreground and, and some guy, like, drawing glasses in the background. And and um, Elliot manages to, in the literary way, create a sense of deep focus where everything seems to be there, but she always tells you where to look. Web or tapestry, we know we're in Middlemarch after a while and that it's real, it's happening. I wonder what you learned from George Eliot about building that sort of invented but persuasive world in fiction. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's really hard to do it, right? Because you have to make all of these... Well, you don't have to make all these choices. Everything you do is a choice. It's a really amazing thing when you read a novel that does a good job of it because you're not really aware mm. of how it is that the novelist is creating in you this sense of immersive reality where you're just reading, you know everything about this world, you mm. feel as if you reside in it, you feel as if every little bit of it that you encounter is attached to all of the context that comes with it. But, but how do novelists do that? It's really hard even to do that in a single scene. You know, Eliot's way of somehow managing to choose characters who give you that huge scope where you feel as if you're sort of hovering above middle margin, able to look into each corner of the town and able to look into all these different types of life. And at the same time, there's so much intimacy. Like I said about foreground and background, at any given moment, you're, you're always very intimately involved with whoever it is that she puts in front of you. So, you know, I think, I think what Elliot taught me was that it is possible. <laughs> it is possible. But, it, but it's very hard to figure out how she does it because she, um, she at least in Middlemarch, she crafts a voice that's so... It's so peculiar, peculiar to that book. And it's very, very 
hard to discern how she built it because she built it so well. Susan Joy, in Middlemarch, this is called realism. No magic, no miracles, no skyhooks, no tricks, really. What should we be learning about what's real? Your new book, Trust Exercise, Susan, takes reality apart from in different eras, looks back, different angles, cuts it up, pieces it together, sort of. That's your trick with reality-making. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. What is real? I mean, I think one of the questions inherent in this idea of realism is the question of what's important. You know, um, at least for me as a fiction writer, I have recognized that the easy dichotomies that I used to embrace, you know, fiction versus nonfiction, truth versus lie, are destabilizing now. They're not as clear as they used to be. The confidence that I used to feel in objective reports on different events has been shaken. I believe in the news and I believe in journalism, but I also believe in bias and I believe in suppression and and I believe in now the incredible difficulty in telling a story that's fair to everyone. I don't even know how we do it anymore. So I think that as a fiction writer, seeing what I recognize as fictional tropes Hmm. in in places that aren't supposed to be producing fiction, you know, has made me think about storytelling in a really different way. And and that's a lot of, I think, what happened in my novel was that I wanted to explore what happens when there's kind of a crisis of storytelling authority. That's what we don't have in Middlemarch. I would argue that there's no crisis in storytelling authority in Middlemarch, and that's one of the deeply comforting and, yeah, solacing things about it. Yeah, let me ask. It's fascinating to hear you speak of our own shaken grip on what is real, what is true. Can you surface a George Eliot picture, a voice, struggling for her own voice of authority, fighting doubts about what was really going on in Middlemarch? Or did you just know? Do I think that Eliot also struggles to have storytelling authority? Yeah. Absolutely. I think she absolutely does, and I think that that's one of the ways in which she, you know, interestingly, I think it's one of the ways in which she wins our trust, is that she often, in Middlemarch, speaks to the reader and refers to the act of storytelling itself, Mm -hmm. and that she's doing it, and that she's finding it hard, challenging. But I think the fact that she acknowledges herself as storyteller is part of the reason that we find her so believable. She doesn't she doesn't hide behind this kind of godlike anonymity. But there's never a sense that she fears that she might be lying to you. You know what I mean? That she fears that she might be actually grotesquely misrepresenting people, assassinating their characters. There's never any of that. She knows she's not going to lie to you, but she does go back for revisions. And in in the end she lets Dorothea show how to figure out Rosamond, which was with charity, with sympathy, with understanding. Right, right. And with and with revisiting her own initial impressions. Yeah. And acknowledging that she maybe was wrong about this person. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. It seems to me we're all in Middlemarch, one way or another. We have our different Middlemarches. We're much more connected, related. It's somehow 
like an organism or our DNA, every molecule uh, is affected by every other one, and it's not logical. It's it's relational, and the George Eliot way to deal with it is slow down, forget yourself for a moment, listen, try to feel what you're going through, and then show up tomorrow or something. Right. Leave aside your biases or your sort of prejudgments about who it is in this world who yeah. matters to you and who it is who doesn't. You know, she, in that passage about the stealthy convergence of human lots, she talks about um, the indifference or the frozen stare with which we look at our unintroduced neighbor. You know, we look at that person and go, you're not meaningful to me. You don't have anything to do with me. Your lot and mine are not intertwined. And that's, that's the thing that Elliot is asking us to reconsider. You yeah. know, our lot may be stealthily converging with that of that unintroduced neighbor that we, that we don't feel like looking at. What does Middlemarch offer to readers today? But the first thing about Middlemarch is that I wouldn't want to call it instructive because that's, <laughs> that's going to sound possibly to unfamiliar readers sort of dry and unappealing. Yeah, like, preachy, didactic. Oh, yeah, oh, like I don't really want to have a didactic reading experience. And I think the thing about Middlemarch that any Middlemarch curious reader should know first off, is that it's an amazingly absorbing story. It's just so addictive. And I think in this world of of binge-watching, really, really well-done costume drama, Middlemarch is like the ultimate binge-reading book because there are so many amazing characters and so many compelling storylines, so many of which are about the things that we still really care about, right? Like, how do I make a living and get people to respect me? And how do I satisfy this like craving for spiritual and physical intimacy with my soulmate? And, you know, how do I, how do I make sure my kids are going to be okay? And, and how do I do good and not evil? Like all of these concerns that I think we still have are so beautifully animated in these characters. And so, you know, I don't want to call Middlemarch a soap opera because that would be such a, denigration, maybe, although I, I actually like soap operas often, but, but Middlemarch is a, it's a great multi-character story, and the characters are wonderful, and the story is told by a narrator who, it feels like she's sitting there with you, and is equally kind of concerned for your happiness and well-being <laughs> as for that of her characters. It's just so nice to spend time with her, you know, and I remember oh, when I first so well undertook said. it. Yeah, I was I was like, oh my God, I'll never get through this book. And then at a certain point, I remember thinking, what am I going to do when it's over? Mm. <laughs> what will I do with myself? And, and it's nice because then, of course, it's still there. And you can read it again. Susan Choi's first novel 20 years ago was The Foreign Student. Her new one this year is Trust Exercise. Rebecca Mead gets the last words on Middlemarch, if only to account for the happiest couple in the book, the only ones who stay on in their hometown. Fred Vincy and Mary Garth are sweethearts from childhood. He is the merchant's son and Rosamond Vincy's brother, with a bit of a weakness for debt and daydreaming, but he's aware steadily from the start that Mary Garth is the best girl I know. 
She is the rock-solid child of a property manager in a job much like the one George Eliot's father did. Fred and Mary never get rich, but they have three good sons. They write books together on crops and cattle, and they live happily ever after in Middlemarch. Rebecca Mead, why 2019 does this feel so real? The suit still fits. (laughs) These characters are real. It's happening before us. We're in a zone of as far from Twitter speak as one can imagine. It's patient, it's pastoral, and personal in a way that maybe England isn't at all anymore. But (laughs) we're urging people to put it in their bag on the way to the beach. Why? And why now? You know, the dresses may change and the appurtenances of life may change and the political questions may change. But these central questions that she's addressing in this novel about love, about loyalty, about duty, about family, about community, all those things are still very much things that we think about all the time and that we have to think about all the time. They're the human condition. These are people in the middle of somewhere, at the outset of their lives, in many cases, trying to figure out who they are and who they're going to be. And that's something that we're all doing. And I mean, having gone back to the book time and time and time again, it really is a book that can be read at any age, can be embarked upon for the first time at any age, but can also be revisited at any age. I mean, you're talking about Fred and Mary. When I was 17, I was so uninterested in Fred and Mary. I found them just dreary. I couldn't... Wow. I know, I know. I can't believe it now. But I I found their life... Oh, my God, it's so boring, marrying the boy next door. What a dull (laughs) choice. That is so not what I want to do. And, you know, then when I read it again, when I was in my 40s and thinking about what the choices that I had made in my life and how far I had come and how very distant from my own childhood I had reached, sort of looking at Fred and Mary, I thought, oh, my God, that's my parents who met when they were 14 and got married when they were 21 and had been together their entire lives and were together for almost 60 years until my father died while I was in the middle of writing my book. So you read the novel in different ways at different times. And so when I read it in my 40s, it was a book that was giving my parents back to me and giving me back my connection to my homeland too and my own country and and being able to see England in in a different way. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I'm wondering, Rebecca, in what way George Eliot is instructing us how to observe, not least to see life as chapters, as scenes, but also to to look to the other side some way. And it relates to what you said earlier about, you know, this being far from Twitter land that we're in here. I mean, this is a book that requires sitting with and patience and a bit of fortitude if you're not used to reading Victorian literature. I do promise anybody who's trying it for the first time that it gets better, as they say. (laughs) And that, you know, if you're stuck at the very beginning on St. Teresa, then just keep going. 100 pages in, you won't be able to put it down, I really promise. But I think that, that the ambition of Middlemarch is so much greater than many other novels. And maybe that is what makes it 
a grown-up novel, what Virginia Woolf famously called one of the few English novels written for grown-up people, is that it attempts to give us an entire panorama, an entire world. So we have everything from the doctor to the local gentry to the vicar and his own sort of longings and thwarted hopes. And, And we have wills and we have you know legal contests and we have a fight over what kind of a hospital is going to be built where so we've got like local politics in here as well it's not just a buildings roman and it's not just a love story and and it's not just a political novel it is all those things you mentioned the dream at the outset of living a life of saint Teresa proportions so you have to read the conclusion which brings it right back home Yes, well, I'll talk to you about it, and I will read it to you. It's talking about Dorothea. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Even now, just reading those last two lines um, without having read the whole book to go with it before it, it's sending tingles up my spine. It is so beautiful and there is such a kind of musical dying fall to the, the final words of it. You know, I don't think it's possible to read those words and to get to the end of this book without a massive exhalation of breath <laughs> and a gasp at the accomplishment of it and the, and also the feeling that you know as i said at the beginning that you've really accomplished something reading this book you've gone on a tremendous journey and maybe it's made you a i don't know dare i say better person thank you dorothea thank you rebecca a pleasure thank you george elliot marianne Thanks also to Susan Choi and Rosemary Bodenheimer. Thank you, Rebecca Mead, for putting all of our lives into Middlemarch. Read the book, people, and then leave us a comment at radioopensource.org. We'll send you a T-shirt. And while you're up, think of leaving a sixpence for the world's first podcast and the hardest-working team in radio. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath finished Middlemarch and lived to tell about it. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source.